You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living, Reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. On this week's broadcast, we will share a few of those reflections with you. And so we'd encourage you to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to another edition of Your Life is Worth Living. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me to learn a little bit more about our faith. And uh, Bishop Sheen, of course, will talk about uh, some topics that are near and dear to our heart. Uh, Today, he's going to talk about the psychology of the rat race. Now, we hear that term a great deal, the rat race, and uh, I think it relates uh, to (laughs) sometimes what's going on today. Uh, But it's a crazy world we live in, and so... Uh, It was crazy back then, too. It's been crazy for centuries, it seems. Uh, But, of course, he took the time to uh, put us at ease and to explain it a little bit. And so that will be the first reflection from his television series, Life is Worth Living. And then we're going to have a priestly retreat to one of the messages he gave about serving society. And uh, our Lord came to serve, and we need to imitate him uh, by serving our fellow men. So he will give us some words of encouragement during the second part of our show. And so I'd ask you to sit back and relax now and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Friends, it's always a problem from week to week to know which subject to choose. There are a great variety And one is sometimes in the qualms and indecision of a a man who had considerable money and he decided to invest it in Latin America. He didn't know whether to invest it in a gold mine or a uranium mine. So he went, didn't know whether to go either to Chile or to Colombia. He chose Colombia, and he invested it in gold and lost everything. So he borrowed enough money to come back on a plane. He didn't know which airline to take. He chose one. The one he chose had a couple of engines that conked out. Stewardess came through, gave them parachutes. He was offered two. He didn't know which one to choose. He chose one. The one he chose didn't open. As he was flying down, falling to earth, 
He shouted out to the heavens, St. Francis, St. Francis, have pity on me. And from heaven there came the answer, which St. Francis? <laughs> so, which subject? I asked my angel, and he was reading Shakespeare. And he said, here's a line. Time is out of joint. Why don't you talk on that? And I said, well, how can I do that? Well, he said, listen, I belong to heaven, not to earth. You figure that out from this point on. So I figured it out, and I decided that a good subject might be the psychology of the rat race. You know, people complain today that life is monotonous and dull, the daily routine of making one's living, the mechanized reiteration of getting up and going to bed, the same pleasures, the paycheck, the spending, the debt, the getting out of debt. Life is just a round circle, a maze, like the rats run around you. The young, some of the young, not all, but might be described as the alienated youth. They have another way of describing it. They say that, oh, the only reason you exist is to get kicks out of life. So, what is the psychology of the rat race? What's the psychology of kicks? Well, in order to do that, I mean to explain it, we have to explain the normal, first of all, the normal concept of time. That is to say, the way that we regard time with right reason. First of all, there is a past to time, and secondly, there is a present, and thirdly, there is a future. Now, these three are combined for us when we are living properly. We cannot have the present without the past, because the past is our memory. We know those who suffer from amnesia, their present is confused because they have no past. And the past is essential for experience as well. Then, present involves the future. With all of its goals, hopes, aspirations. So that normally, Time is very much like listening to a melody or a symphony. You presently hear a note, but you tie it up with the other notes that have gone ahead. And you even anticipate certain notes, like, for example, dump, people dump, dump. You know what that follows, or what follows that. So you even anticipate in music. Or life is something like a river. There's a flow. There's a source, and then maybe it pours into the ocean. And something underlying it all is the bed of the river. Now, that's the way time is to us normally. To understand the rat race and the alienated youth who talk about getting kicks out of life, we have to go back to the diagram. The... Uh, 
the angel wanted me to separate normal people from abnormal, so he washed my board. Now we come back again. Past, present, future. They who say that life is meaningless, like a rat race, deny the past. They're against tradition, any form of conservatism, and above all, they are uprooted from home particularly the youth of this kind. A youth normally is meant to be like wheat that stays in the field up, into a, up to a certain point of maturity. And then when it ripens, then it goes off on its own. But today, this kind of youth and the rat racers tear up their past. They will not have any memory. They're not interested in even in tradition or in history, and no future, no goals, no purposes. Life is unpredictable. It used to be that changes were rather accidental in life. For example, the invention of the, uh, well, of the wheel, or our first discoveries in astronomy. But they say today, the essence of all life has changed. Furthermore, the future is unpredictable. With the atomic bomb, we may be blown to bits tomorrow. Now, if there is no past or future, what is left? The present. That's all. The now moment. The immediate. The sentient. Something that I can feel right now. But what I feel right now in this rat race has nothing to do with immortality or the future, nothing to do with the past. Now some, the extremists, among the rat racers and those who want to get a kick out of life, they try to intensify the present moment. Get as much as one can out of that instant. So, well, let's take some dope. You get a kick out of it. Get drunk. Speed. Why did you rob the store? I got a kick out of it. Hallucination drugs. New kick. And the result is that they are, they're always rebels. Rebels in protest against ideals and against the past. And 
They're very strong, intense in their protest. They'll carry a placard against placards. Against government, against religion, against education, against schools, anything. But you ask them, well, what do you want instead? They don't know what they want. They only know that, well, I must live this particular moment and that is all. Hence, dropout. Why dropout? Well, simply because you, you are planning a future, are you not? You stay in school. And this type of people also, they never fall in love. Never fall in love because love is a commitment. Love is an involvement. Involvement. Yes, they will uh, go in for sex, possibly. But they'll make it understood I'm not going to fall in love. It's just the now that comes. This is what makes the rat race. A living for today, for this moment. Now, we must not just merely explain things. We must also try to get people out of this. How can we do it? Well, here are some suggestions. The now moment the instant never explains anything, anything, anything. It's like looking through a keyhole. Or it's like taking a single tiny frame of a motion picture reel and concentrating on that frame. Makes no sense. What's the story? Furthermore, the reason the now moment never explains anything is because the explanation of the present moment is in relationship to the future. Suppose I want to take a trip from New York to Washington. Now, what explains the now moment in that trip? The fact that I'm going to Washington. We say in philosophy, this is the final cause of purpose. The final cause is first in intention, namely I want to go to Washington, last in execution. The last thing I do is to get there in this trip. But it's, it's that final purpose that makes every single moment in here full of meaning. And even my point of departure full of meaning. That is why I say that the uh, now moment explains nothing. It is explicable only in relation to the past and the present. Secondly, time. Second. It constitutes an obstacle to real happiness. Nobody can be happy as interested only in the now. The reason is, you can't make a club sandwich out of pleasures when you're in time. 
Only because I'm in time, I can't march with Caesar and with Napoleon. I can't invite to see Francis Thompson and Homer because I'm in time. I've seen many a sign on the roadway, eat and dance. I've never seen anybody do the same thing together. Because what time demands that you take your pleasure successively, not all at once. And have you ever noticed, too, that the more you are bored, the more you are bored, the more conscious you are of time, second, 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 like that aspirin dropping down, you know, in that little slot. Time, time, time. People with headaches on the beat, the beat, time, time, time. Now, for example, you're, you're worried, now, how long have I been here? How long have I been watching the bishop give this telecast? You see, you're not enjoying it. Now, listen, for, for you, for you up in Manitoba, let me tell you something. I just saw you. I just saw you. You looked at your watch. I don't mind that when you listen, look at me in television. But don't do that. <laughs> So time of and by itself is boring. The clue is the more you get out of time, the more you get away from these unrelated instances, these kicks, the more happy you are. You listen to a symphony. engaged in an interesting conversation, and you say, time passed like anything. So, you see, time is the enemy of happiness because it demands that we take our pleasure successively. If therefore we ever are to be perfectly happy, really happy, we have to get outside of time. really outside of it. We have to get into the eternal. And then we can have all genuine pleasures at once. The point, therefore, that I am making is that the rat racers and those who live just for this second without any goals, purpose, meaning in life, they are unhappy. No wonder they have to go in for sedatives and a thousand and one escapes. Because the now moment is boring. Now to help them get out of it. What is the rat race and why is it called a rat race? Well, simply because the rats are going around in a circle all the time. How do you draw rats? <laughs> you know, I can't draw anything. Did you know that I, this is true, I was offered a free scholarship by the New York Art School because I couldn't draw. 
I didn't accept the scholarship because I knew they couldn't make a drawer out of me. Well, at any rate, uh, rat, uh, rat constantly running and running around the cage here in a meaningless existence. And so with those who just have the now moment, here and there. Now, they seem to think, therefore, that uh, the time is very much like a clock. Have you ever noticed that practically all of our watches, you see, are circular? so forth. And we fall under the illusion, we who are in the rat race, and we're just getting kicks every hour in unrelated fashion, we think life is just like that. We start all over again. Just a constantly, constant recurrence of permanently inconsequential moments. That is not a very good picture of what, of what life really is. There's something else in life besides that. Life is rather something vertical. Not a circle. And each day that we live is like an addition. Suppose we made an addition. I hope that's right. It isn't. Thank you. It's 35, isn't it? That's one of the reasons why it's always nice to have a, an audience of mathematicians. <laughs> All of my audience here today, my dear listeners, are professors of mathematics in higher astrophysics. <laughs> so that life is really the sum of the days, the hours, the minutes, the sum, the sum. Some add a little more than others. Maybe the column will run all the way down here. Maybe it'll be short. But there comes a time when God draws a line. That's it. The so-called now moments are added up. The things you did in the so-called rat race are added up. Whether one lives 20 years, 40 years, 50 years. Life, we say, is incomplete. No, no, it's not. That completes it. That line. And he draws it. So that life, then instead of being this way, as I say, something vertical. Or I might describe it as a kind of a hill. This is a hill. I always tell you what I'm drawing. This is a hill. Now, there's something at the top of the hill. Something 
toward which we are working in all of the moments of life. And what is that thing? There isn't anything here we know that perfectly satisfies us. Nothing. We want life, yes. But each tick of the clock brings us closer to that line. Our hearts are but muffled drums beating the funeral march the grave. So, though we want life, we do not want to live five more minutes. We want to live. But what have we got? We've got a hurdle here. Pain, sickness, and above all, death that interfered with life. Then, we have another. Desire and yearning in our soul as we ascend. We want truth. Not the truths of geography, but the exclusion of the truths of literature or philosophy. One of the first questions we ever asked coming into the world was why? We were made to know. And as children, we tore apart our toys what makes, find out what makes the wheels go round. We are incurably bent on knowing truth. But we find that there's a hurdle in this climb, there's error. And there's something else we want, we want love. And that love, too, has something in it even when it does remain fine and noble and clean, a day must come when the last embrace is passed from friend to friend and there is nothing perfect that ends. So we find hate in society here. But because we're not living for the now moment, we know also that we wouldn't be wanting these things unless they really existed. There wouldn't be the fraction unless there was the whole. And so as reasonable beings, we ask ourselves, this life and truth and love that I, I am seeking for, where find it? Where's the source of it? Where find the source of light that is here in this studio? Not under here, because light is mingled with darkness. Not back here, mingled with shadow. I'm to find the source of light that is in the studio. I have to go out to something that has no admixture of darkness in it. I must go out to something that is just pure light. So as a reasonable being, I say that if I'm to find the source of the life and the truth and the love that I want, and that is what I really want, I have to go out beyond the to a life that is not mingled with the shadow of death. To a truth that is not mingled with the shadow error. To a satiety, to a love that is not mingled with the shadow hate and satiety. I must go out to something that is pure life, pure truth, pure love. 
That is the definition of God. Our sincere thanks to the Fulton J. Sheen Company, who has given us permission to share these broadcasts with you today. I invite you to make Bishop Sheen a part of your family audio and video collection. You can call them toll-free at 1-866-357-4336 or visit the official website for purchasing Catholic Family Videos and DVDs of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen's recordings from the Catholic television series, Life is Worth Living. The web address is www.bishopsheen.com. You will find rare collections of Catholic family video recordings addressing a variety of topics such as morality, Mary the Mother of God, angels, Catholic Holy Days, and other faith-based subjects. So call toll-free today, 1-866-357-4336. Again, 1-866-357-4336. And on the web, www.bishopsheen.com. And on behalf of Bishop Sheen, God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, some of us have excused ourselves from being good priests by claiming that we are social workers. Others of us have excused ourselves from love of neighbor by saying that we love God. Teach us through thy spirit the truth of being your ambassador in society. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. If there is any one treatise or tract that is needed today, it is the theology of serving society. The theology. We have plenty of philosophy, sociology. But do any of us understand our mission to society if we do not root it in Christ? As a matter of fact, we understand nothing. We have lived through the 60s. When remember the one word that we had to use was the word involvement. You never hear it anymore. Moods last less than a decade today. 
So let us go once again to our dear Lord. Study his nature, and from it draw some very practical conclusions of what is our responsibility to society. We begin with the fact that our blessed Lord had no human person, only the divine person. The difference we will recall from theology between a person and a nature is that a person answers the question, who? A nature answers the question, what? What is that? A microphone. What is that? A table. Who are you? Who is a person? Now, our professor of dogmatic theology never made it that simple. Otherwise, he would never be a professor of theology. So our blessed Lord had two natures and one person. It is our person, our human person, that limits our nature. For example, all that my nature can do is limited by Fulton Sheen's. If there was the person of Shakespeare, then this nature could write much better. And so on for any other person. So that a person limits the nature. Since then, our blessed Lord had no human person. There was no limitation of that nature. That is why our blessed Lord is able to incorporate all humanity unto himself. We cannot do it. A husband and wife can become two in one flesh, but that's the limit of their unity. There can never be the absorption of ourselves into Christ, so that as priests, of course, our personality is even lost in the personality of Christ. I live, no, 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 says Paul, not I. But Christ lives in me. Therefore, if our blessed Lord had an infinite person, he was able to incorporate unto himself all humanity. Not only all humanity, he also could incorporate unto himself all human experiences. And it is that that we are going to talk about. I think the incorporation of ourselves to Christ we understand. And we're going to describe this power of Christ to take unto himself the whole cosmos in terms of homonization. The epistle of the Hebrew says that he became like his brethren. By homonization, I mean that he took into his humanity all human tragedy. There was no experience that we could ever mention that did not in some way happen to the person of Christ. So let us go through his life and see how he homonized, existentialized, incorporated to himself all humanity and all tragedy in order that we will get away from talking about development 
as one of the aspects of Christian life. It's deeper than that. First of all, he harmonized infancy by the helplessness of being a babe. So that the tiny hands, they were not quite long enough to touch the huge heads of the cattle or the hands that steered the stars and moon in their courses. He existentialized and experienced youth. Twice in the early Gospel of Luke we read that he grew in age and grace and wisdom. So that the spirit that Christ had grew in him as his human faculties grew. He was therefore able to incorporate unto himself more and more of the power of the Godhead by the receptivity of his growing nature. At the age of twelve, therefore, he became a teacher. In those days, there was a, there was little juvenility. I think we in America have the longest juvenility in the world. When does a man grow up? We mature only under responsibility. And responsibility may be either physical, that of earning a living, or moral, living under discipline. That is why the ages of our priesthood will increase. The young men who come to us will be older and older. Because they have to be more mature. Physically, they mature very quickly. Mentally and spiritually, they do not. But at the age of twelve, here our Lord is, was given the power, as the Jews expressed it, to be the son of the commandments. Can you imagine any child of twelve that we confirm being sent out to teach? But our Lord taught at twelve. That's really the essence of confirmation. Going out teaching and proclaiming the word of God. St. Paul says we are to reach our mature nature in Christ. So here he was referring to what had happened to the Lord himself. And as the Lord advanced in years, he therefore took unto himself all the experiences of youth. He knows every heartbeat and every thought and desire of every young man and woman in the world. Not only did he hominize youth, he hominized labor. He was a carpenter, yes. He was the carpenter who carpentered the universe. He was the architect of the universe. And he was not just a laboring man. Remember that. He was the rich who became poor. 
was rich became poor for our sakes. That we might be rich. During those days of labor, there were all the concerns of the mother and the child in his avocation. When at night, for example, and the sun was setting in the west and he might have stretched out his arms like this in fatigue and thrown against an opposite wall the sign of a cross. And the mother had to register that in his heart and he knew that he was doing it. Every time he stepped on a nail, every time he hurt his finger with a hammer, he universalized the experience of labor. And therefore even technological labor because he was under the penalty of Adam, earning his bread by the sweat of his brow. Then he universalized all humanity. He called himself the Son of Man. That expression is used about 80 times. No one ever called him the Son of Man. In the Acts of the Apostles, Stephen mentioned it, but it was a quotation. He sometimes used it as a personal pronoun. What was the son of man? Humanity. Mankind. He was absorbing the totality of human experience within him. And the term was never used after the resurrection. it was the mark of humidity. Then the universalism, too, by which he took in the Gentiles. Here he goes into his own hometown of Nazareth, and the clerk hands him the reading of the day, which is from the prophet Isaiah. And he gives a sermon. Imagine, he gives a sermon to a Jewish synagogue in a little village about two Gentiles. He talks about Naaman the leper. He talks about the woman that was cured. The woman widow of Sarepta. And they can't take that universality. Isn't he just related to the nation of Israel? Why does he have to talk about other people? What relation has he to the world? So they throw him out of the synagogue and take him to the brow of a hill. Those of you who have been in Nazareth will recall that uh, there's a drop at one point in the city of Nazareth of 200 feet. And that was where they brought the good Lord to throw him over, to kill him. And he walked through the midst of them unharmed. Then he also praise twice Gentiles in their faith. In fact, the only two times that our Lord was amazed was at the faith of Gentiles. 
Never was he amazed at the faith of his own people, but at the Gentiles. I can understand that. I was on taking a plane about a month ago, and just before I got on, a young man about 28 said to me, Give me your blessing. Which I did, and he said, Did you make the sign of the cross on my forehead? I said, Yes. He said, I want you to do it. I'm a Jew. I said, just for that, I'm going to make bold to give you a crucifix. You need not take it. But I can tell you that if you will look at this crucifix from time to time, as your people once looked at the serpent, you will never be overcome. And at the end of your death, you'll be life, you'll be very happy. He took the crucifix. I came back the next day on a plane, and lo and behold, I met him in the airport. And he held up the crucifix, kissed it. I was amazed. So I can understand our Lord being amazed in the faith of the Gentiles. Therefore, he was reaching out to the world. See, this is the beginning of mission. It precedes Eundes Docete. Go and teach. From the very moment, our blessed Lord was drawing all humanity to himself. After all, do you think the effects of the fall are greater than the incarnation? There isn't a single person in this world who does not feel the concupiscences. Every Muslim, every communist, every Buddhist, every Confusionist and every Confusionist feels the concupiscence. Now, can it be that the fall of Adam had a greater repercussion upon the human race than the incarnation of our blessed Lord? It's impossible. So that all humanity is potentially redeemed. As Leo XIII said in his letter on the Sacred Heart. And what missionaries do, and all the missionaries that have gone out here, from here. What are they, what are they really? What are missionaries? Missionaries are lawyers. They're counselors. And they're going out to people saying, listen, did you know that you have been left a great estate? Someone died and left you as an, as an heir of fortune. And I came to tell you about that fortune. We do not bring Christ to the pagans. We bring Christ out of the pagans. We actualize Christ through his gift and with him. So our blessed Lord was, went into Gentile country and he acted just as Joshua did. Remember when Joshua was leading the Israelites over the Jordan to take possession of the promised land. He saw someone on the other shore 
great drawn sword. Joshua said, Are you with us? Or are you against us? That seemed to be normal. He either had to be with the Jews or the Canaanites. No, I am the commander of the Lord of hosts. All humanity belongs to Christ. So that on the cross, see, our Lord was stripped of his garments. Why was he stripped of his garments? Because they localized him. They made him indigenous to a country. And as Eileen Duggan, the Australian poetess, put it, O ye with frontiered hearts, conceive it if you can. It was not life alone he gave, but country up for man. Then he even harmonized the experience of all of the refugees of the world by being driven out of five cities. Bethlehem, Gadarenes, Nazareth, Jerusalem, no place in the inn of Bethlehem. Five cities drove him out. So, what did our Lord do? He experienced, assumed unto himself all of human tragedy. Now let's draw the conclusion and get away from development and get away from the idea of just social work and contrast of priests and social work and of excusing ourselves because we must be pious or excusing ourselves because we're busy with neighbor. The first practical conclusion of the Incarnation is vulnerability. Our Lord was vulnerable to every human pain and ache and woe. So that when he's on the way to visit the daughter of the principal of the synagogue, Jairus, He's interrupted by the woman who touches the hem of his garment. And everywhere crowds pressed him. Vulnerability means sensitiveness. Openness to being wounded. Unshielded. Every hungry stomach hurts us. It hurt Christ. That's why he fed them. We're not doing social service. We're vulnerable to the wounds of humanity. This is the Christian theology of the love of neighbor. We shall see we neglected it too much in another era. Now we're forgetting something very important in this one. But if we start with Christ, then we will understand who the neighbor is. He's the one whose hunger and whose thirst 
and whose homelessness hurts us. We're vulnerable. We're wounded. And the second conclusion, the foundation of all kinds of love of neighbor, is the Eucharist. Because we're dealing with human bodies. In the hospitals, the sick, the hungry, the homeless, every one of them has got a body. How will we become interested in that body? By that body there in the tabernacle. Mother Teresa was on television in the States. And some priest said to her, Sister, how can you be concerned with these hungry, dirty people of Calcutta? Sometimes full of vermin, bodies that are filthy and foul. Oh, she said, Father, is that the way they are? I didn't know that. She said, I receive communion in the morning, and then I make a holy hour, and I just found the body of Christ wherever I went. I didn't know they were that way. Now, let us have a theology of Christ and social work to stop these divisions in the church, making social work a mood instead of the prolongation of Christ. So if we are the ambassadors of Christ, then we are vulnerable. No scar? Hast thou no scar? No hidden scar on foot, side, or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers, spent, lean me against a tree to die, and rent by ravening wolves that compassed me about. Hast thou no wound? No wound, no scar? Yet as the master shall the servant be. And pierced are the feet that follow thee. But thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound or scar? You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and thank you for joining me for another edition of Your Life is Worth Living. I hope you enjoyed those reflections uh, from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. I know I especially uh, enjoyed that talk entitled Serving Society 
and how he made mention to St. Mother Teresa of Calcutta and uh, how she sees the Lord in the suffering soul, uh, how she spent uh, time in her holy hour uh, each day and, of course, Mass, and then went out and she found the Lord on the streets of Calcutta. Uh, but may I encourage you to find the Lord, why, uh, as they say, he may be found, and he is found in the many adoration chapels uh, all over this great country of Canada. And I would encourage you to visit a website entitled Eucharistic Adoration Canada. And again, very simple, Eucharistic Adoration Canada. And there are many insightful articles, uh, locations of where chapels are located, uh, ideas of how to uh, conduct a good holy hour. We're always looking for ideas how to pray. And so please visit the website, eucharisticadoration.com, and you'll be glad that you did. And, of course, I want to thank everyone for supporting Radio Maria Canada, uh, both uh, prayerfully and financially, and we'd ask you to continue to help us as the Holy Spirit inspires you. And so until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. You have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Here on Radio Maria Canada.